Welcome to House of Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from this past Sunday. For more information about other messages or events at House of Hope, visit www.ihope.today. So, I don't know when it was, uh, maybe those of you who have memories um, that are long of the tooth. I think I preached a message probably about 18 months ago, maybe a little bit less, about House of Hope and what our, part of our, what of our destiny was to become and to be, and is, not become, but is, is a place of refuge. Does anybody remember that? No. Some of you do. You weren't here. So, so I don't feel bad. I won't have to go like, you don't listen to me. So I wanted to revisit, revisit what this means about being um, a place of refuge. Um, we've have a number. We've had a number of prophetic words over the years that declared House of Hope to be a, a place of refuge, a, a place of healing, a place where people could come and feel welcomed and loved, and, and a place where where they can um, um, receive the growth and receive the healing that they need without judgment. And and I just I I just keep thinking about what that really looks like. We've seen a number of changes at House of Hope in the last say three or four years, um, for the for the good. People have come in and they've like, man, I just love this place. I love you know what the Lord is doing here. I love I can just come in. I can be myself. But I've never really looked at what a city of refuge was um, according to the old the Old Testament. And there's a, number, there's a number of passages in the Old Testament um, that talk about cities of refuge. <clears throat> and basically what they were, were there were six cities in Israel that the Lord had commanded to be set up. And they were cities that were given to the Levites. Now, if you remember church history or biblical history, when the children of Israel crossed into the, um, into the promised land, there's how many tribes of Israel? Twelve. And 11 of the 12 received land. And the 13th, or the 12th tribe, sorry, not the 13th, that's a, that's a different thing. That's, that goes into the flat earth theory. Anyway, um, the 12th, you know, the Levites were the priests. And they were the ones that, that took care of the, of the tabernacle. And later on the temple. And they were the people that that had no basically an inheritance. They didn't have the land. They didn't have the, the, the ability to create wealth. And so the Lord actually had them, um, each of the, the other 11 tribes, gave the tribe of the Levites cities. There was, I, I forget now, I think there was, um, oh, it's right there, it was 42 cities in Israel. And six of those 42 were designated as cities of refuge. Now, because this was a law-based um, covenant, and they were in the middle of this covenant, um, I just see this, the beauty of a city of refuge was if you could, you could actually break the law and knowing, knowingly break the law and go into these cities and not face retribution, judgment, or anything. Now, they're, typically they were set up for, for murdering. So if, if you murdered somebody and... Everybody was chasing you. You would run into this city of refuge, and you're good, right? And so 
In Numbers 35, um, it, it talks about this. It says, The cities which you shall live, shall give to the Levites, shall be the six cities of refuge which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. In addition to them, you shall give them 42 cities. All of the cities which you shall give to the Levites will be 48 in total, together with their pasture lands. And so, I was thinking about this you know, what does that look like? Why, why did the Levites get these cities of refuge? Why, why did the Lord actually have these cities of refuges set up in order for them, to, you know, to, to steward? And I was like, what was the chief purpose of the Levites? Anyone? To be priests. And what do priests do? Priest stuff. Right. They, 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 steward, they steward the presence of the Lord. Correct? Like that really was ultimately they would do the things, they would do the, the, you know, the, the sacrifices, and once a year the chief priest could go into the Holy of Holies and all that kind of stuff. But really they were the stewards and the caretakers of the presence of the Lord. And I just thought it was really interesting that the Lord would set up um, cities of refuge and, and the Levites, the ones that were stewarding his presence, were the ones that were stewarding those cities. And it's, it's, it's comparable today for us as priests. We're all priests in the new covenant. We all have access to the Holy Spirit. We all have access to his presence. And we steward each individual one of us, each and every one of us. We steward the presence of the Lord in our life. And, and we are, have the ability to grant refuge to the people who need it as individuals. I was like, wow. And so when House of Hope was, was released and was spoken over, I think Steve Backland spoke a, a, a word over us about being a place of refuge, a place where people could come and, and feel the presence of the Lord and sense the presence of the Lord and, and receive what they needed to. They would come into an atmosphere of love, no matter what was going on. And whereas the cities of, of, in the Old Testament, the cities of refuge were predominantly murder, now in the New Covenant, our hearts are to love people no matter what. And so, in the last, I think it's been a couple of months now, um, a lot of things have been happening in society even that I have seen um, the response of the church to that have actually kind of made me a little bit ill. If, I don't know who, if you know who Anthony Bourdain was. He was, a, he was an amazing chef. He was a communicator. Um, I really enjoyed listening. He was brash. He was, he was just like, you know, he, we, he was amazing. He was an amazing guy. He was a gifted chef and a communicator. And he committed suicide. And I think it was the same week or within 10 days, uh, a high ranking high profile fashion designer by the name of Kate Spade in New York she she committed suicide as well and in the, the different circles that I kind of watch on social media and because that's where basically everybody has their platform to be stupid um, they you know they like the Christians were coming out well it's you know the world is a better place because Anthony Bourdain is now in hell and Kate Spade is, you know, like she's like, you know, she got what she deserved. And, 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 I, and I was just thinking, wow, you know, what if a place of refuge in Jesus was offered to these people? Because they were obviously going through something 
that they, they decided they have no hope. And it just really, it's, it's, it's something that I really want to rehash or re-remind, revisit here about what our role is in this community as a house of refuge, a house of hope. Because what does is, what is refuge actually look like? Refuge, like they would come in and they would have hope that their, that their life would be alive, that they would have a life. And, and you know, we, we are getting this house. We are developing and have developed a reputation for being loving and being accepting and being, you know, not judgmental. And I hear that this reputation and I'm like, I'm excited. This is exciting because what it's telling me is that we're living up to the prophetic words that were given to us. Now, does that mean everything is all perfect and everybody has their crap together? No, no. I'm excited. If, if all of us had our crap together, I would probably resign because that means that we've sent, settled, uh, we have developed a very, very good way of hiding our crap. And nobody deals with it. Nobody gets it done. Nobody gets, because, you know, just because I don't want, I've been in churches where you have to be perfect, where you have to, you know, you can't, if you can't be on a worship team, if you're, if you're dealing with stuff, you know, you're going through, uh, I remember years ago, um, back in the 90s, uh, family was going through a, a, a breakup and, and the lady was actually, you know, living with somebody else at that time. And the pastor said to Deanne, uh, you need to get her off the stage because she can't. And Deanne's like, I will not because she's actually dealing with her stuff. And he's like, what do you mean she's dealing? He, she's still living in, at that point, it was, you're living in sin. And she's like, she's open with us. She's open with, the, with, you know, with her struggles. She's open with, like, she's talking to me. We're praying together. She's walking through some horrendous stuff. And I said, and I'm not going to remove her from the, you know. So that caused a little bit of friction with us. But it's that kind of attitude I you know, that we have to have as a house that says, I don't know your journey. I don't know your process. I don't know where you are in this, but I'm going to love you regardless. And I don't necessarily have to fix you. See, Jesus never, he never got down on the ground and fixed people's problems unless they asked for it. Right? He, was, he was loving and he, was, he provided sanctuary for people who came to him. So let's look, let's look at, at John, John chapter 8. This is a, a classic story of, of Jesus' love. And we're just going to pull a couple things from this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So Jesus was a morning person. He loved to go to church early, you know. You know, we some people are like, can't you have a Saturday night service instead of a Sunday morning because I like to sleep in? I was like, give it up. Like ten o'clock is not a bad time to have a service. 
If you want to be like Jesus, like he was probably, you know, first crack of dawn, we could have a 6 a.m. Sunday morning service. How many of you guys are morning people? Yeah, I am. So, see, all right, see, the six of us, we could meet at 6 o'clock. The rest of you guys can do whatever you want. So now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Wow. So what the heck were the Pharisees doing? And where was the man? And where was, you know, there's, if you picture us meeting right now, you know, as we are, and all of a sudden the doors swing open, they fling open, and religious leaders, pastors from other churches, drag in this woman, start, probably stark naked, because if she was caught in the act, there was a good chance that she had no clothes on, and her, she was embarrassed, she was shamed, and they throw her down, and they start to condemn her because of what she was doing. Well, how are we going to respond to that? How do we respond to that? The Bible is pretty open and clear that there was actually what was happening was this, this crowd mentality. How many of us know what, like, what, what a mob mentality is? Later on, later on in, in, um, in some of the stories of the early church, uh, and I didn't grab the, the, the chapter and the verse, but there's this picture of, um, I think it was Paul was about to be stoned, and then there was a group of people, and they were calling for his death. And they, were, and they were just rising up, and they're like, kill him, kill him. And, it, and the Bible says, and some people came, and they did not know what the, the, the hubbub was all about. That's my translation. But they didn't know what, why they were there, but they were calling, yeah, oh, yeah, kill him, kill him. And that's what was going on, actually, in this scene where Jesus was teaching, this, um, teaching everybody. The woman gets cast in front of him, and then in, it says... Um, and teacher, this woman was caught in the very act. Now Moses, verse 5, Moses. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said, testing him, and that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. How many times have we been approached in our life? How many times have we been attacked by other, say, leaders or friends or people that we look up to or, and, and question, why, are you, like, why do you do this? Over the years, I've been questioned, why do you allow people such as homosexuals and lesbians into House of Hope? We've been confronted. Why do you allow them in? And I say, because Jesus did. Why do you allow people who struggle with gossip and are, and are living, they're, they're, they're living together, but they're not married? Why do you allow these people into your, into your family? I said, because they're family. Our, our, in, our, our process, the things that we struggle with, the things that, you, you know, that we deal with, if we don't understand each other, we're going to get into this mob mentality and say, well, if you're not going to change, get out. Because that's what we've been taught. That's what religion has taught us. And that's what the Pharisees were getting at. The law says that she should be stoned. Are you putting yourself up above the law? What are you going to say? And they're trying to trick Jesus. Just like a lot of men and women do to us at times, and we may actually do to others, 
and saying, well, they're not following what the Bible says. They're not doing what is right. And Jesus, I really believe that Jesus was concerned about doing right, but at the same time, he wanted their hearts. Because if he has their hearts, he can actually change their lives. But changing behavior and being concerned about behavior, well, I don't know about that. It's not going to do nothing. If, you know, we use our kids as an example a lot. And I think someday they'll probably have to have a sozo and, you know, and stuff like that. But, but it, we, Deanna and I figured out early on in our, in our parenting journey that setting up rules didn't work. But if the kids understood why and, and, and understood our hearts, they were much more able and willing to change. And, and it just, I think that's the way that Jesus does it, does it with us. So Jesus stoops down, writes on the ground with his finger, as though he didn't hear. And a lot of, there's a lot of conjecture in theology and in Christendom about what he was writing. Some say that he was writing out the sins of the Pharisees. Some say he was actually you know, drawing pictures of the Pharisees, little stickmen. And, you know, it's like, um, but he didn't respond. So when they continued asking him in verse 7, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and he wrote on the ground. I think what was happening here is that had Jesus responded when everybody was accusing the woman, and when, they were, when, he, when, the, when the Pharisees and the leaders were there saying, what does Moses say? What does Moses say? What do you got to do? What do you got to do? There was this mob mentality being built up. And there was probably people yelling out, Stoner! She's supposed to be stoned! She's supposed to be killed! Kill her! Kill the bitch! Kill the, the whore! Kill her! Right? Because they were vile people. Like they were just, that's what mob mentality does. Right? That's like, and I shocked you there. Because that was... We're not used to that. How can you be so crude? Well, that's what was going on. And Jesus was in the middle of this, and in the middle of this, of this mob. And he takes a moment, and he says, I'm just going to write here. And when he answers, it says, and then he stooped down, and verse 9 says, Those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience... When a mob mentality kicks in and we all get stirred up, our conscience, they've proven this, our conscience actually gets checked at the door. We do things that are not who we are because our conscience turns off and we get caught up. Do you remember, I forget how many years ago it was when the the Vancouver riots were on because of the hockey games, right? Wow. There was people in there and they said afterwards they were being charged And they had clean records. They had people that were like normal, everyday citizens who got caught up because it was fun to burn a car or to flip a car. It was like, oh, I was just like, I don't know why I did it, but everybody else was doing it, so I did it. Millions of dollars of damage. I remember the L.A. riots in the... A long time ago. And it was like like that same mentality... Bad verdict. And all of a sudden, the whole city rises up in this mob mentality. 
and they checked their conscience at the door. And so what Jesus was doing, he was more addressing the mob mentality than he was doing anything. He was saying, get your hearts back into your bodies. Get your conscience back. Start thinking about what you're saying and what you're doing. And he says, let, you know, let he who's among, without sin among you throw the first stone. And then, by the, and then those who had heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. This is interesting. The older I get, the more or the less understanding of what I'm doing. I, I don't, sometimes I just don't know what I'm doing. Right? The older I get, the less I know. I just, I don't get it. I don't understand. I, you know, Ken, can you, you know, you're getting pointed at it. But when I was 20, I knew everything. And I told my kids, my boys, I said, you guys know, think right now, you think you know everything. And Andrew's like, yes, I, in fact, I do. I'm confident in that. And I'm like, yes, you are. Because I was. I knew everything. I knew, I knew the right thing. I, I remember I was 17, eight, no, 18 or 19 years old working on a farm. And, and I was in the kitchen talking to my friend. Her name's Sue. And, and uh, they were having some... They had been married just for three or four years. And, and they were having some marital stuff. And, and I'm like, well, I don't know about you, but this is what I do. And she's like, wow, that's really good advice. And I'm like, yeah, right? I know. And she's like, wow, you're going to make an amazing you know, husband someday. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's true, right? And, and, uh, and she wasn't being sarcastic or anything. It's like, it was good advice, but it just, it got me like, I know it, you know? And you get a little bit of ministry under your belt. You get a little bit of experience at that young age. It's like, yeah, you know what's going on, and, right? And then you get into your 30s, and then life starts to push back a little bit. And the things that you were dogmatic about, you're starting to be a little bit less dogmatic about. And then you get into your 40s and early 50s. And you're like, crap, I have no idea what is going on. I'm just like hanging on to Jesus. Because the things that I was dogmatic about in my 20s, I'm like, wow, I can't believe that I'm actually here. I can't believe because I was taught so much. You know, we wouldn't have an atmosphere of what we do today if I was pastor when I was in my 20s. Because it would have been, you don't smoke, you don't, you don't drink, you don't sleep around, you don't, you know, heaven forbid. I mean, in the, in the, in the 90s when I was starting out, homosexuals weren't in the church. They just weren't because they weren't loved. They were condemned. And, and this is, this, this one area has been a, it has blown my mind personally because I'm seeing the humanity in people. The humanity in these men and these women who are struggling with their identity. And I understand it. I'm going, these are real people. But what we do is we have this, this, this crowd mentality that pops up that says, they're not real people. They don't have feelings. They don't exist. They're, they're gay. And they have no place in the kingdom. And the more, the more I, I chew on who Jesus is, the more I see that the kingdom is actually quite inclusive. 
Now, does Jesus want them to stay there? No, but we're not going to correct it. We're not going to help people by saying, get out. You know, Dan and Ashley, you guys spent, what, eight, ten hours last week in the hospital, right? Because you were, what, you were, you were healthy, and you just wanted to go there, hang out with the doctors and the nurses. It was date night in the Meldrum house. No, they were sick. They had something going on. There was an attack on their body, like a, a back, whatever it was, and, and they had to go to the doctor. And, and when they entered the hospital, the first thing that came out of the nurse's um, mouth was, you're stupid for, doing, for being here. Get out. Your kind is not welcome here. You sick people, get out. Right? That was the first thing, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. No. It wasn't. If you're thinking, yeah, well, maybe. No. <laughs> I'm just saying, no, it wasn't. It was like, they, you go somewhere, if, if, if somewhere has hope, if somewhere has the ability to bring healing to you, you want to go there. There's many people that go to Mexico to, to Indian doctors when they have cancer because they have a plan. They go, I'm desperate. I am desperate for some healing. I am desperate. I will do whatever it takes to get hope, to get healed of whatever it is. A friend of mine, they, they, they took her mother around the world, literally around the world, to battle breast cancer. And they, and they paid for it. And, and some of it was legit, some of it was, you know. But, but there was a desire, and they took, and wherever they went, they were received well, because that was what they're here for. We are here to receive people who are struggling in their crap. Now, do we leave them there? Up to them. It's really up to them. But there will always be a place here for people who are struggling with their crap. And whether I'm involved in their restoration or or you're involved with their restoration, there's got to be this acceptance of saying, you are welcome here, you are loved. What would we do if a queen walked in? And I'm not talking about the Queen of England. I'm talking about a a, a man dressed up as a woman, and that's his lifestyle, or a transgender. Or what are you going to do with people who actually were born male and had a transformation, their life changed, and they're a woman now, and they come into a, a, a loving knowledge of who Christ is, and they're following Christ, but they're a woman now. What do we do? Yes. We do. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's, I believe, is the next level in who we are, is, is that we, as society changes and as, as, as people are allowed to experience, experiment, whatever, mind you. And, I, and do I agree with that? No. But it's, it's, what are, it's the change in our society. The church has to be ready to accept these people in. And I say these people, and I mean that with honor. It's not a these people. We accept them in, and we love them, and we love them for who they are. And we get to know their process. We get to know who they are and where they've been and why. What happened? And we, we've, we've got to. Because what's happened is, is that we've attacked other people's moral failure in order for us to make ourselves look better. I just wrote this down. It says, moral fa- um, don't ever use someone else's moral failure to prove your own moral high ground. That's what the Pharisees did. They've used, they used their, and, they, and we, we go, oh, 
I'm so much better. No, really? And we sin, and we get, again, then we categorize what's, what's sin and what's, what this sin is greater than this sin. And that this, like, I mean, and, and so we have this category of, well, and it seems like in society that it, today what the church is saying is that the church, the church is saying is homosexuality is the ultimate. That's the category 10. But, you know, if you're, if you're, and if you're living with somebody, that's a category 7. And category 1 would be like if you eat too much. Or maybe you gossip a little bit. And, and like what we've done is we've, we've tried to redefine what sin is, right? And what is, what is sin? Sin is anything that actually breaks covenant. Jesus gave the one covenant in the new, co- in the new covenant, right? And that was the covenant of love. When we break love, when we break relationship, that is sin. That is the one law. And so we take all of these and we pump them out and we go, we're going to love on you guys and you girls. You know, you could be, you could be struggling what if whatever? Just there's so much that we struggle with. But just because we struggle with something doesn't mean that we love Jesus any less. Doesn't mean that we, we, have, we don't have a heart for, for God. That we don't have a passion for, for who he is. Just because we struggle. We could have a young man in here who's struggling with his identity and he loves Jesus with all of his heart, but he doesn't know what to do with his attraction. And same with a young woman. And it's like, well, well what, what, what do we do? Nothing. Until Jesus says, pony up to this person, tack your, tack your halter, tack your whatever next to them, and do life with them. Get to know them. So let's just look at Johnny. Let's continue. So those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up, saw no one but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, Neither, said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, Christianity did not make us superior to people around us that are struggling. What Christianity did was was our relationship with Jesus. It enabled us to serve and to love more than we were ever able to before. That's got to be, and if it hasn't, I would seriously question who you're following. If, you're, if your heart isn't to serve and to love people more than ever, regardless if you agree with their lifestyle or their actions or what they do or what they say, then are you actually following Jesus? Or are you following a religious figurehead that is a do's and the don'ts and this is what we do? I'm just putting that out there. That's pretty harsh, but I would question it. Because the fruit of Jesus' life was love. It just was. So we have to get to know the story of the people that are in our midst. We have to get to know the story of why are they like this? Why, what has happened? 
If somebody would have come along, Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade or, or Robin Williams, think of these people who, who on the outside have it all together, but then end up killing themselves. And then judgment comes? No. Our first response needs to be mercy. Our first response as a house needs to be love. When we see things going on in the community, one of the things that I, I haven't had an opportunity to do in the last two years, but I did do it three years ago now, is, was, was become, do some spiritual care in the, in the, in the gay, gay Pride Day. And I wasn't able to this year. We were, whatever, it doesn't matter. But people will come up to us and say, oh, you're from the church. What are you doing here? And it's just like, wow. Because we have to know the stories. Jesus knew the story of the woman. What about the woman at the well, where he knew that she was actually had four husbands and she, and she was living common law with the one then? And he's like, yeah, I know you. Let's talk. He wasn't afraid. But we get caught up. We get caught up in the words of this book that says, this is what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. And then our actions, our actions then get changed. Our behavior gets changed, but not our hearts. I'd rather have a heart that's changed than my actions will change. When I'm connected with Christ, when I am in his presence, when I'm doing what, like not doing, but I'm being with him, Everything that I do, there's fruit. So here we are, we've been called a revival center. And oftentimes when, when, when there's, God is doing something, people are drawn. I remember back in, in, in 94, 95, when you know, the Toronto revival was sweeping through this area. And you know we're a Christian center at the time, and We'd have nightly meetings for, I don't Linda, do you remember how many, how many months? It was like six, seven months. Long time. And the place was packed. Three, fifty, four hundred people a night. And there was people there that were struggling at the time with the big sins. Smoking. It was like scary. But, they were, but people would come. And then the criticism that we received were, you're attracting all these people that, that really have no place in church. And we're like, seriously? Where are they going to go? Because it brings me back to the point of when you go to a hospital, you go because you're sick. If there's something going on in church, if, there's, if God's presence is there, if we're stewarding his presence, people are going to be drawn here and they're going to receive his presence. They're going to be see, receive love. They're going to receive acceptance and they're going to have the ability to change and be transformed because it is the power, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that changes all of us. But it seems like the thing that we received for free years ago, we want to charge other people. And if you don't do the book, if you don't do the program, get out. So where there's, we're called to, to a world of opposites. So where there's darkness, we're called to bring light. You know, when there's sickness, we're called to release healing. You know, where there's, where there's broken relationships, we're called to mend those relationships. And it's that process. But it's got to be done by accepting people for who they are.
And that's why House of Hope is, is and will continue to be a place of refuge. And to quote a phrase or to coin, not to coin, but to call on a specific saying, is like, oh, i got to back up. Because this... <laughs> We are who we are, and no amount of people's issues are going to change who we are because we are through his presence, and we have the capacity to touch lepers and see them healed. Whereas in the old covenant, the lepers touched you, you became unclean. And so I've had people say, well, they're changing... People with issues are changing who we are. And I say, no, that's not true. Only if we allow it. Because we have to stay focused on his presence and be stewards of what he has called us to do. Be stewards of his presence and love. Anyway. Does that make sense? So, that's all I have to say. Wow, I spoke. I'm feeling much better. (laughs) I think possibly I wasn't supposed to give that message this morning because I really actually feel great. I was pushing out the crap. Oh, you have no idea. Uh, One of the books that I want to highlight and just in closing, um, this one is called Changed. I don't know if anybody is following what is happening in California with the legislative... Um, the, the legislation that is going on that will prevent um, doctors and, and ministries and religious um, leaders to actually counsel people that they can be healed from their um, sexuality issues. So what Bethel has done is they have, um, they're a big proponent in, in, in getting people aware and stuff like that. And they've come up with this book, and Ken Williams is a friend of mine, um, who he, him and Elizabeth Wanning are the spearhead of this, of this movement. They have put together a book called Changed, and it's called, it's Changed Hashtags Once Gay Stories. And it's about, it's the whole book of, 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 of uh, testimonies of how people, their, their journey. And it was, they presented this to the legislature. Native Assembly of, of California and stuff like that. So I received a copy this last week. I'm going to put it in the library if you want to read it. They're amazing testimonies of God's transforming power of bringing people back into who they are, who God created them to be. And so that is available. So, all right, let's stand. And we're just going to close. Father, I just thank you that you have given us this place, that you have given us a mandate to be uh, a place of refuge, to be a house of hope, to be a place where everyone is welcome to, and, and, and everybody is welcome to experience the transformating, transfer, transformative power <laughs> of the Holy Spirit, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. 
because we've all been there. We've all been transformed. Our lives are no longer the same because of what you have done in our lives, Father. And Father, we want to give that freely back to the people who are struggling, to the people who don't have hope, that they would walk in through these doors and they would feel your presence and they would be loved by us. That they would be welcomed, that we would go to them and we would welcome them, open arms, give them a hug, say, hey, can I help you find a seat? Whatever it is, Father, that, it would, that I know that you are, you are causing this place to become more well-known and it's causing a lot of um, stuff to be stirred up in what we believe, but we stand firm on love this morning and we, know, and we declare together as a house that we are a house of hope. We are a place of refuge. We are a place of love. We are a place where Jesus can transform us and anybody who he brings into this place. Because you are love, Jesus. God, you are love. And we make that declaration as a house today. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sermon of the Week. Our desire is that you will be changed by the love of the Father and the power of his presence. For more information about House of Hope, visit us at www.ihope.today.